everybody. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Tim O'Leary. Um, I'm the youth pastor here. Um, there are some incredible young people over in that direction. If you don't know them, get to know them. They're not scary, I promise, even when they wear hoodies. Okay, they're not scary. Um, they're not scary. Um, if, if you're here tonight, uh, I, just, I just need to just throw a disclosure out into the room before I get started. If you're here tonight and, and you would say, do you know what, I don't, I'm not a Christian, I'm just here because it's warm, um, then, then you can listen to the next 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and feel at peace, okay? Because what I recognise is what I'm about to share might not be wholly applicable to you, and, and that, that's okay. For the rest of us, though, who are in this room and go, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, I believe in this thing called grace, then, then, then I think this is for us. Is that okay? Um, now, I, I, if you, I, I have another disclosure to make. Full of disclosures. Neville, don't worry. <laughs> Sorry, in-joke. Um, I, I, I have every intention um, of, of following Jesus, of being faithful to God. I do. Um, but somehow... And at some times, my intentions are compromised. Um, I remember when I was about eight years old, um, my, I, I was a good church-going boy. Um, I went to all the kids' groups. I knew the answer to all the questions. It's Jesus, by the way. Um, and I, I uh, begged my mom and dad, Mom, Dad, can I go around to my friend's house? He's invited me around for dinner. Would that be okay? Um, and they were like, yeah, that's cool. So... Went around to my friend's house, and um, we were waiting for dinner to be made, and his sister, who I think her name was Annabelle, I'm not too sure, but I think that's what I remember. She was in the house playing dolls or whatever on her own, and, and me and my mate were outside on, on bikes. Now, he was on his bike, um, and I was on his sister's bike, because that was the only other bike available. And we were kind of riding around the cul-de-sac, and then we heard the call for dinner. And so my mate just absolutely cycled as fast as he could, towards the house to park his car up by the side of the house. Um, his car, his bike, by the side of the house. Not his car, gosh. His dad would have been very angry. Um, no, his bike, he was on a push bike. And um, he, he just rode this thing as fast as he could to the side of the house. And I thought, that looks fun, I'm going to do the same. But what I didn't realise was that the gap between his dad's brand new car um, and the house was, was very small. And, and obviously it was just wide enough to get his bike through, and I thought, oh, I, could, I could do this. So I absolutely pelted it and then, and then bottled it right at the last minute. And, um, and as I bottled it, I wobbled. And um, the, the, the handlebars um, of, the, of the bike scraped a deep scrape down the side of my friend's dad's brand new people carrier. Oh, it, was, it, was, it looked like it was going to be expensive to repair. So I went into the house and I had dinner and I must have been pale as a ghost because his mum was like, are you okay? I was like, yeah. Was like, is the food okay? Like, yeah, it's great. Knowing uh, <laughs> the whole time I'd committed this terrible atrocity but I didn't have the guts um, to own up to what had happened. And, and I knew that the, the closer and closer we got to pudding and the closer and closer to that, the, the end of my dinner, I knew that at some point I would have to admit the, the mistake that I'd made. Um, and then what happened was Annabelle uh, ran upstairs to her bedroom and her, his dad, um, their dad, went outside to the car to get something out of the car and all of a sudden I heard, Annabelle! 
get down here now. Because what her dad had realized was he'd seen the scratch and seen the bike and put two and two together and got five. And I thought, I've got away with this one. So I didn't own up. I let her take the blame. A little six-year-old, sweet, innocent girl, still to this day, her dad thinks that it was her. If you're out there listening, it was me, I'm sorry. I do apologize. Uh, but I, 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 I'm going to hazard a guess that I'm not the only one in the room that has every intention of being faithful to God, and yet somehow those intentions are compromised. Maybe we've had every intention of reading the Bible in one year, but our intentions have been compromised. Maybe we've been praying for friends and we had every intention of continuing to praying for those friends um, who don't yet know Jesus, but our intentions have been compromised. Maybe it's forgiving that friend that baited you out. You had every intention of forgiving them, but um, your intentions got compromised. Maybe our intention was starting a standing order for your tithe, but your intention got compromised. Maybe it was joining a life group, giving to the roof project, coming to church every Sunday, but your intentions got compromised. Maybe it was fighting for the justice, fighting for the oppressed in our society, praying for those that are being trafficked, and yet our intentions were compromised. Maybe you had every intention of not telling that, tr- that, that secret that your friend told you to everyone else, but you couldn't help yourself from snapping it to the whole world. Your intentions got compromised. Maybe you had every intention of not criticizing church leadership behind their back, but your intentions were compromised. Maybe you had every intention of paying for your own Netflix account, but your intentions were compromised. Maybe, maybe you had every intention um, of, of passing that spliff on, of stop it, stopping at that third Jager bomb, of not kissing that girl that you didn't know. You right there, Sam? <laughs> you okay, mate? Was it because I said spliff? No? Which one was it? Okay, fine. He's okay, guys. Like I said, young people aren't scary, all right? They're okay. They're just like you and I. Maybe we had every intention of not watching porn. Maybe we had every intention of deleting those photos. Maybe we had every intention of of adding another single room to to, to the holiday that we're going on with our boyfriend, but our intentions were compromised. I know this is uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable, but I know that we have every intention of being faithful to God. But if you're anything like me, at times your intentions are compromised. Which has made me think this question all this week while I've been in preparation. Is if we have every intention of being faithful to God, how do we protect our intentions from compromise? If we have every intention of being faithful to God... How do we protect our intentions from compromise? Well, the good news is we're not the only people to have ever existed to have their intentions compromised. Um, Tonight we're going to turn to Ezra 
chapter 9 and chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I would love you to get it out, turn it on, flip to the Old Testament. Um, We are going to read two whole chapters. Yes, we are. Buckle in, folks. We're not referring to Scripture tonight. We're reading Scripture, okay? We're going to be in the Old Testament. Um, This is a small group of people who, a long, long time ago, had every intention of being faithful to God. And yet they found themselves compromised. Um, In Ezra 9, we we find that this this man Ezra finally arrives on the scene. Um, We've we've already been reminded of the story to this this point. And and basically, God had given permission via the the Persian authorities that they were under um, for Israel to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And at chapter 9, what we find is this is 60 years after they've rebuilt the temple. So they, they've done what God has asked them to do. They've been faithful to God, and yet their intentions have been compromised. And so here we go, right from verse 9. And hopefully I'll make this journey a little bit easier as we go along. So verse 1. After these things, these things being building the temple and celebrating that, um, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra writing about himself, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebus, all the ites, basically. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, pause. Um, When I first read this, I was like, what on earth is going on? What does it mean? What's happening? Why is this such an appalling thing? What we need to remember that in Deuteronomy, which is way, way back in the Old Testament, God gave a load of instructions to Israel. And one of them was really specific. And he said, because I want you to be set apart... I don't want you to to be swayed by the culture that surrounds you. And so um, that was a clear instruction. We can read that in Deuteronomy. And so the reason why, oh, I've lost Ezra. Um, What had gone wrong was that they'd openly rebelled against God's instruction. That's the thing just to recognize it, openly rebelled. So verse 3, this is is Ezra's response, right? Verse 3, chapter 9. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak pulled hair from my head, ouch, and beard, double ouch, and sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God um, of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. The exiles being this small group of people that had been sent from, from Persia back to Jerusalem. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. He sat there appalled for quite a long time. He was appalled. And then the evening sacrifice... I rose from my self-abasement. This is an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Rising from your self-abasement. Love it. With my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees. I don't get that. Like he, was, he rose from his self-abasement to fall on his knees again. Weird. Anyway, um, I just, it's funny the Bible. You come across things and it's like, what's that about? Um, so, and then he prayed, he prayed this prayer, right? Verse 6. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. They had every intention of being faithful to God. 
but their intention has been compromised. Verse 7, from the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. And because of our sins, we, have, um, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. And what he's recognizing there is that their history up to this point had, had been a response to their rebellion. God, God had almost uh, kind of allowed them to be in captive from Babylon and to be in captivity by Persia. There was a response to God, to their rebellion. But also along with, with, with his response, which seemed harsh, there was this gracious response, which Ezra recognizes in verse 8. He says, but now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant. Remnant basically meaning just a small group of people. We, we, we think it was maybe around a couple, I don't know, maybe I'm making this up, but a couple hundred, maybe a thousand tops. Andrew, what do we think? A bit more than that? A bit more. There were a bit more. Ask, ask Andrew how many a remnant was. But not many. Not many. Um, and so, uh, where are we? In this sanctuary, and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God had not forsaken us in our bondage. They were getting a view of God's grace. Ezra was realizing that, that yeah, things were bad. Yes, that the people of God had been unfaithful to him. Their intentions had been compromised, and yet... God has extended his grace towards them. They were in captivity um, by Babylon for, for many, many years. And that was a hard thing for them. But in God's grace, Babylon was taken over by Persia. And at the beginning of Ezra, we learn that the king of um, Persia, his heart was softened towards Israel. God didn't need to do that, but he wanted to. His people had openly rebelled against his word, against his will. And yet he did something for them that they didn't deserve. This was a gift they didn't, definitely didn't earn. Definitely didn't earn. So anyway, Ezra continues, and we'll jump to chapter 10. Because um, this is important. While Ezra, verse 1 of chapter 10, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. And then this guy called Shechaniah, son of someone else beginning with J, um, was one of the defendants of a guy whose name began with E, said to Ezra, you know what, we, we've been unfaithful. We, we see it now. We didn't see it before. We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. In spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our intentions being compromised, there is still hope for God's people. I think some of us might need to hear that tonight. In spite of our intentions being compromised, there is still hope for God's people. There is still hope. Verse 3, now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. In a, this is awkward, man. I was reading this this week and I was like, this, this is awkward. It, it, I, I've got to be honest, it's awkward. You know, here, here's Israel, they've been unfaithful. 
They've, they've given homes to, to, to women that, that God had clearly told them not to. And um, some of them had children, apparently. And yet their response was to get rid of them. That's awkward. And then I was reading around it and I, and I learned that we think that the word for marrying isn't, isn't marrying in the sense that we know it. That it, was, it was almost they'd just given home to, they'd given, they'd given space to. And in doing so, their identity as God's people was being diluted like church squash. They, they, weren't, they weren't as tasty as they once were. Right? They were diluted. Their image as God's people was being diluted. And so they separate themselves. Remember, God, God called Israel to be separate, to be set apart, to be holy. That was his intention. And so they choose, they recognize, gosh, we've compromised. Our intentions have been compromised. And so they separate themselves from the place of their compromise. And then it goes on and, and basically says that what they do and, and in response. And then at the end of chapter 10, um, there are the names, um, somewhat about 100 names that are detailed uh, of, of, of who they were, who the men were. You see, out of his love for his people, um, God had placed a boundary, right? A clear boundary. Please don't do that. I don't want you to do this. But because um, he knew, he, yeah, he set a boundary. Um, but they outright disobeyed God to not intermarry. And, and, and in turn, they gave themselves over to another way of life. They gave themselves over to another way of life. Um, they compromised their intentions to be faithful to God by giving attention to what they wanted and not what God wanted. They paid attention to what they wanted, not what God wanted. And through one man's public confession, through Ezra's public confession of his community's sin, the people of God come to recognise that they are united by and united in God's grace. The very fact that they are a remnant, the very fact that they're still alive, the very fact that they have hope still is evidence of God's grace. He could have wiped them out if he wanted to. He could have kept them in captivity in Persia, miles and miles and miles away from the land that he promised them. But no, God treated them as their sins did not deserve and allowed them to return. And not only that, but he allowed them to rebuild the means by which his presence could be with them, which was what the temple was all about. So not only did God's grace allow them to return to the place of his presence, Jerusalem, but also to the, he gave them the means by which to be in his presence again. He gave them a gift they didn't deserve and one they definitely didn't earn. And I just want to suggest, as every story in the Old Testament is, their story is our story. Their story is our story. God sends a king, the Persian king, Cyrus. A king makes it possible for God's people to be made right with God by re-establishing the temple. 
He gives them back the means by which to be present with him. And after the resurrection of the temple, Ezra gathers this small community, this small minority of people, and calls them to remain faithful to God so that they can fulfill his calling on their life, which was, if you wanted to read it in Genesis 22:18, to be a light to all nations. Their story is our story. We, we live post-cross, post-Jesus. This is our story. God sent the king. The king makes it possible for you and I to be in the presence of God because of his final sacrifice upon a cross. And after Jesus' resurrection... Jesus gathers a small minority of people together and calls them to be faithful to his calling, which is the same as Israel's calling, to be a light for the world. Craig Bartholomew, I think that's how you say his last name, in his brilliant book called um, The Drama of Scripture, um, which I highly recommend, he says this, Though Israel largely failed in its calling to be a light to the nations, Jesus did not fail. He fulfilled God's purposes for Israel. And then after the resurrection, gathered a community of his followers and charged them to be um, with the task of continuing what they had begun in John 20, 21. We are part of that community. And their task to continue in Jesus' mission is also ours. Their task to, to be a light to the world is also ours. The people in our story, their intention had been compromised, but they moved to protect their intention from further compromise from, by stopping, this is really important, from stop, by stopping one thing and starting another. Ultimately, they did what they wanted and not what God wanted. They protect their intentions by stopping doing something and starting doing another. They stop looking at their face and they start looking at God's grace. They stopped looking at their face and they started to look at God's grace. They're able to stop staring at their own reflection because they're able, they start to see God's affection for them. They stop looking at their face and they start looking at God's grace. They're able to stop looking in the mirror by their view of God becoming clearer. They stop looking at their face and they start looking at God's grace. Turn to someone and tell them, you need to stop looking at your face and start looking at God's grace. Tell someone, tell two people, you need to stop looking at your face and start looking at God's grace. That is easier said than done. Our culture... Our culture, our moment is obsessed with yourself. It is obsessed with your individuality. It is obsessed with your face. It is obsessed and it tries to make you look at your face. Sorry, Eric. And it says your face is good. You look great. You do you. 
You define truth for you. Don't let anybody tell what um, you to do. You be true to who? Yourself. Here's another thing that our culture says. It's on the slide, I think. Hopefully. Throw it up. Any of them. Be who you are and say what you feel. Because those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. Here's another one. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. You do you. You be you. You're amazing. But the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to stop looking at your face and to start looking at God's grace. Stop looking at your face. Start looking at God's grace. The people of Israel did what they wanted to do. They turned away from the the way that God wanted them to live. But Ezra's confession helps them to see God's grace. And they go, gosh, we're no longer going to live as we want to live. We're going to live by looking at God's grace. And we're going to turn from ourselves. And we're going to run the race. And we're going to go for it. Because we're not going to look at our face anymore. We're going to look at God's grace. Stop looking at your face. Look at God's grace. Stop looking at your face. Start looking at God's grace. Turn to someone else and say, stop looking at your face. And start looking at God's grace. So as we come back together, um, here's, here's a short video of someone this week that was interviewed and I think helpfully um, illustrates to us what it means to stop looking at our faces and to start looking at God's grace. If you didn't know who that was, it was Justin Bieber. He's got a new album out apparently. It's very good. He says this in that video, I'm not trying to earn... Um, God's love by doing things. God's already loved me before I did anything to earn or deserve it. What he did is the gift. Forgiveness, or in brackets, grace, because it helped me. It is the gift we look at and think, I'm going to worship you, God, because you gave me something so good. Bieber stopped looking at his face. And he started to look at God's grace. See, by surrendering ourselves to the gift of grace, we begin a journey. And the journey begins from being able to say no to sin towards a point where we won't even be able to say yes to sin. That's the journey. That's what happens when we embrace grace. We begin from not being able to, by being able to say no to sin to not being able to say yes to it. So here's the challenge. I I invite us this week, literally, to do what I've done today. To find a mirror in your house and to somehow draw a cross on it. Maybe with your mum's lipstick. Maybe with your own. Sam. (laughs) But as an act to say, actually, do you know what? 
I, I, I just want to, I want to live in remembrance of God's grace. I don't, I don't want to do what I want. I want to do what God wants, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it costs me. You know, the, the thing with grace, the danger with grace is we make it a cheap gift. We make it a cheap gift. We, we, we see it as a get out of jail free card. We see it as a, as a way to give us permission to do whatever we want to do because, oh, it's okay. God's grace forgives me. No, man, no, no. Grace cost God his son. It cost Jesus his life. That made Jesus pretty uncomfortable. And so it should at times cause us discomfort to live in response to God's grace. That's normal. That's normal. That's normal. So what happens then? to us as we come into land what happens when we stop looking at our face and we start looking at God's grace well I think we we learn and we begin to realize that our life isn't our own that the breath in our lungs is a gift from God that really everything that we have is a gift the school you go to the university that you're a part of the job that you're in the family that you have the church that you're a part of, the leaders that you follow, the country you live in, it's all a gift from God. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. I think what happens is also, you know, though we've not chosen them, our family becomes something that we see God's chosen for us. Suddenly making that cup of tea in the morning for your mom or your dad or your sibling isn't a chore. But it's something that you want to do, not something that you have to do. Suddenly that phone call to your dad becomes something that you want to do. Your family who don't understand why you do this Jesus thing, and, it, and they, to be honest, they make it really hard for you to follow Jesus. Suddenly it becomes really easy to pray for them because you're living in response to God's grace. It's not about you anymore. It's about them. It's about him. That awkward uncle and auntie becomes a little more bearable. Maybe not a little less awkward. Some things never change. You've not met my auntie Margaret. Um, if you're watching this, I love you. Um, I, you, you know, your relationships with, with your friends at church, I, I think it changes it. Because, you know, no longer do you feel rejected by that group of people that really you don't really know. So when they do something and don't invite you, it doesn't hurt anymore doesn't hurt anymore because you recognize that God's accepted you. So, so the acceptance of others doesn't matter as much anymore. I think we become slower to anger because we recognize that God's really, 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 really slow to anger with us. Suddenly we're quick to forgive one another because we remember how forgiven we are. We're patient with one another when we let each other down because we're aware of how patient God is with us when we let him down. We're all of a sudden able to disagree with one another well on theological matters because we realise that, honestly, none of us really fully know who God is. We stop sending memes of Andrew to one another because we realise God doesn't mock us. Stop it, Sam. (laughs) And we're no longer disappointed when the worship isn't vibey because we realise that the vibey worship God longs for is a life sacrificially centred on him. 
It's not to do about the music. That just helps us do what he wants us to do. Just give him attention. I think when we, when we look at God's grace, stop looking at our faces, we can't stop praying for our friends who don't yet know Jesus because we're desperate for them to know his grace too. I think we can't, rem- we can't stop ourselves standing for the, up for the bullied because we remember that Jesus stood up for us. And we love our neighbour with everything we have because we remember that whilst we were still sinners, Jesus gave up his life for us. So friends, should we stop looking at our face and start looking at God's grace? Maybe for the next seven days, you want to find a post-it note and stick it on a mirror in your house that you know you're going to look at because you can't resist looking at your face. And it's going to remind you of the gift of life that God's given you. Maybe on Lent, on Wednesday, you want to go, actually, do you know what? I'm going to step it up and do it for 40 days. Maybe it's not a cross on the mirror. Maybe it's a screenshot of it on your home screen. I don't know. I just did a mirror because I thought it would be fun. And I wanted to ruin one of Melissa's lipsticks. Sorry, wherever you are. Um, But finally, like, so imagine, just imagine with me briefly the type of church family we would become if we all stopped looking at our face and we all started looking at God's grace. Imagine how quick we'd become to, em- to embrace one another despite our faults and failings. Imagine the amount of, of people who would encounter us as a church and think, man, they really do love one another. There's something in this. Imagine the amount of young people who would be spurred on in their own walk with Jesus because they're surrounded by people who take his word seriously and live it out. We could have a thousand Biebers because that's what happened with him. Imagine the changes we'd see in our own town because we're not bothered who gets the credit. Answer it in time to stop looking at their face. And start looking at God's grace. <laughs> Dare ya? Ah, never mind. Um, it's fine, don't worry. Uh, but imagine the amount of courage we'd have because the, of the sheer amount of encouragement that we give one another. We change nations, man. Right, you've really got to do it now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so, so let's, friends, let's, let's stop looking at our face and start looking at God's grace. Um... For those of you that checked out um, right at the beginning, because I said if you weren't a Christian, you could, you could you know, do whatever you wanted to do and not listen. Well, back in the room, back in the room. Um, in a moment, I'm going to invite us all to, to, to come up the front and take a pen and a post-it note as a way of saying, do you know what? Yeah, my intentions are often compromised, but I'm going to look at God's grace and not look at my face. But first, a story. Um, a few months ago, me and Melissa went on holiday. And um, I love going on holiday, particularly when it's all-inclusive. Um, this one wasn't quite all-inclusive, but hey-ho. Beggars can't be choosers. It's all grace. Um, and it felt like freedom. It really did. Because, you know, the only thing that I had to worry about, the only thing I had to think about was what, um, what type of eggs I'd have in the morning. And, and would I have fruit for breakfast or not? And, and, you know, shall I have a pina colada by the pool or should I just have a beer? It was great. I was loving it. 
And the other thing that I really enjoyed was that it didn't matter um, if, if our room looked a mess. Because no one was really looking. Because it was behind closed doors. And it wasn't really our house. So it's fine. Do you know, I think some of us, we, we see our own life like that. You know, that's okay, we'll just live in a mess, it's fine. And then sooner or later what happens, like me, is you become a bit stressed by the mess. And you try and clean it up and you think, oh man, I'm on holiday, I don't want to be doing this. And what happened was I realised about three days into my holiday that there was a little button by my door, a little green light. And when I pressed it, what would happen is, without me looking, without me realising, whilst I was out of my room, not paying attention, someone would come in and tidy up the mess for me and would reorder my life and put things back in the place that they thought was best. Do you know, friends, I think that is what Jesus has done for us. It's what God's done for us. He's seen us living in a mess and he's gone, I'm knocking at the door. Will you let me in? Because I know that the mess is stressing you out. Let me reorder your life. It's not going to hurt. It's for the best. It's for the best. And so if tonight you're here and you're going, gosh, I've been trying to do life my own way. I've been, I've been living into that, that, that lie of culture where it tells me to do to you do you, to be true to yourself. And you're here and you, and you think, oh gosh, I'm just a mess, I need help. I, I just want to humbly suggest that you, like me, on holiday, would press that green light. And allow God to enter your life and to reorder it.